Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Get your Bibles. I'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 4. What we're going to be looking at is verses 6b through 11. I've been taking this section real slow because this question of where is God is being dealt with in chapters 4 and 5. This is the question that people have when they're having hardship, having external crises and pain and suffering coming into their life. And God gives this interlude, this parentheses in the book of Revelation prior to the judgments that are going to happen to this future generation of saints that lived during that time period so they can understand when they're going through difficult things, where is God? And how to answer that theologically, how to answer that emotionally, how to answer that based on what they see in chapters 4 and 5. And so we're going to take as an application for ourselves, where you and I are not in the tribulation, obviously, but we can definitely apply what they're going to learn about God during that time. It's the worst time in history, and we'll see it unfold, the plagues and natural catastrophes and wars and Antichrist and the whore of Babylon and all kinds of things will be striking the earth at that time. Well, the believers are going to ask that question, where is God in all this? And what God wants to do is show you where he's at, how to answer that question. Today, we're looking at a very interesting passage, and it's going to discuss how God connects to us, how God is there for us. And we've seen in the last few sermons where God's at as far as he's in control He's revealing unrighteousness and the things that have been done to us. He's going to right every wrong. We've seen that he's the God of grace and faithfulness and promise, and he's the God who prepares our destiny. But this passage now is going to talk to the believer about how God connects to us by identifying with our pain. And what it does is strikes at the heart of our emotional level as believers, God understands that He made us emotional creatures. We're not to be led astray by our emotions, but proper theology guides our emotions and how we're to respond to things. And this is what God's going to do in this passage. Now, to bring it back to our level, our application, the point that needs to be made, and it needs to be made at the outset, is this. The way you respond emotionally to the hardships, to the trials, to the trauma in your life is based on the theological foundation that you have laid down. This is why we see so many people, even in our culture, just take it aside to a pagan culture, an unbelieving culture that doesn't know God, who has no theological foundation. Look at how they're reacting to the world. They don't respond well. You see how millennials have an even just a different view of things, and they need a safe space. They need a puppy to pet. They need Play-Doh to play with. They need safe spaces. You're like, what is that? That's a sign of regression to a childhood. They're not responding correctly. So we see that in our culture. It's because they don't have any theology behind them. Well, now we come to believers, you and I, and based on the theological concepts and foundations we have, that creates how we should respond to things. But again, we're not too far different than the world. You talk to any Christian counselor, 
And we're starting to notice, even with believers, that because they lack a good, strong foundation about God, is that they're responding to things incorrectly. For instance, someone loses a job, and that's difficult. That's a hardship. They lose a job. Maybe have a difficult time going through that, maybe losing some income. But then back in the day, people could get past that, but now it's turning into depression. And then, or uh, someone loses someone in their life or something in their life, and eventually that grief is not turned into a release and to a new day. It's turned into an addiction. Or someone undergoes some type of bad trauma, whatever that is. I mean, it could be anything. And all of a sudden, they have an anxiety disorder. Why is it progressing that far? Why does it have to turn into that? Because a lot of Christians, and again, I'm not talking about us. Well, I'm, talking to, I'm preaching to the choir here. But out there in Christianity, in America, most Christians do not have a good foundation. And hence, they lack the character to handle what's happening to them. And look, guys, you guys know we're watching prophecy stuff. It's not going to get any easier here in this life. It's going to get harder and harder. And in order to handle more, you have to expand your character more. And the only way you can do that is to develop a theological foundation about God, about reality, about yourself, and about others. That's what chapter 4 and 5 is doing. And so, again, the setting, again, is a prelude to the judgments that are going to happen. And... What we're going to learn today is that God identifies with us in our pain. He understands that pain. Let me try to give you an example, because God doesn't do this. He doesn't tell you in your pain, well, just look on the bright side. Just be positive. He doesn't say that. I know Joel Osteen says that, but God doesn't say things like that, right? Or he doesn't say ignore it and just keep pressing forward. God never says that. Or bury it deep down inside and just keep it there. God never says that. I know the psychology world says that, but God never says things like that. This is what God says to you in your pain. It's kind of like with the illustration I read this week about a mom who had a 10-year-old child, and this child needed a root canal at a very early age. He was was losing the tooth, and so they decided to do a root canal. Well, unfortunately, because of his age, they couldn't give him a lot of anesthetic. And so he would have to undergo a root canal and experience more pain than the average adult would experience because they couldn't give him enough of the anesthetic because of his age and his weight and stuff like that. Well, anyway, it had to be done, so they went in there. Well, if any of you had ever a root canal, those are horrible. Oh, my goodness. And this poor little guy, he had to sit there, and his mom was right next to him, And to keep him from flailing around, they had to strap his arms down. And, man, they went to work. They tried to numb it as best they can with what they could. But, again, it was a root canal. And that poor little guy was crying, and and he couldn't move his arms. And he was just, and it was just tearing up the mom. And the mom was there, and she was just holding his hand. It's his hand strapped in the thing. And because he couldn't move his hands, the only thing that was coming out of his eyes was tears coming down. She couldn't do anything about it. She wanted deep down inside to stop the procedure because of the pain she saw her child in. But she knew he needed to get this done. And so she just stood there holding his hands with him as he under, underwent this root canal. They finally got done after several hours. That's what root canals usually take. And 
He got through it. They fixed the tooth. They did the root canal. But the dad asked the kid, what gave you the strength to keep going and, and to push through that? And he goes, well, it's because I know mom was there and that she would be there in the end when it was over. Even though Ma had to restrain herself, just the fact that she was there holding his hand through it, that connection actually gave that little boy, a 10-year-old boy, the strength to get through that root canal. It is amazing in psychology and other things how effective it is when you're suffering to have other people to turn to, how much, how much strength people gain from that. But that's what God is doing for us. Now, a lot of times, he doesn't take away the pain, does he? He allows us to go through that. Now, he's not causing it, right? It's the dentist in the chair, right, giving us the root canal. And sometimes he says, this is for your good, and I have to allow this. I'm hurting to watch you go through this pain, God is saying, but I must allow it because it's the freedom that I gave you. And that's the connection you're going to see. That's what I want you to get emotionally that God is sending a message to us and to the future tribulation saints, I'm with you, I'm in full control of the situation, and I'm, all, I'm, I'm there emotionally for you. And you're going to be surprised by what you see today. It's not typically an image that you would think, oh, that's how God's connecting. But when we're done, you'll see, and you're like, that totally makes sense what God's trying to do. So the only point we're going to have today is this, that what we're learning about this picture here is that God is the one who identifies with us and connects to us. Next week, we'll see how God suffers with us. But this one is how he identifies with us, how he's connected to us. He's not some distant God out there in the heavens that's really uncaring. He's actually connecting to us. Let me show you how he does this and the message behind it. He does it without saying a word. And in the midst of the throne, we studied the throne, and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. We're going to unpack that. That's how God connects. Let me show you real quickly just an artist's rendition of this throne scene that John is seeing as he's called into heaven to see this throne scene. The 24 elders we discussed were the church. And you see the Trinity there with the menorah representing the Holy Spirit and the Father. And, and next week we'll see Jesus at that scene as well as the Lamb. But notice there are four guardian angels that surround the throne. And that's what John is seeing and trying to remark on. He calls them living creatures. And because they, they don't represent just one type of creature, they're actually a composite of many, many creatures. Let me show you another artist rendition. And again, you can see the creatures there, the living creatures, are on all sides of the throne on four spots. Well, let's unpack this because this is fascinating, and it's a living message to us. What does this represent? It's multiple messages so we need to unpack this. The first message as you see them is this. It represents how the tabernacle and the temple structure was formed when Moses saw this. When Moses saw this, remember Moses, where did he get the idea of the tabernacle? Well, Moses saw what heaven looked like. He saw the, the heavenly temple and he patterned the things that he saw in heaven on earth. Let me show you an example. We have the Ark of the Covenant. 
Again, this is another artist's rendition. I don't think the cherubim looked like that. I, I think they looked like the four living creatures. That's what Moses saw. But nonetheless, I think you get the idea. Is he put these guardians of the throne on top of the earthly throne of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant. Then when we move into the temple, Solomon then surrounds the Ark by four. Now, let me show you another picture. This would be Solomon's temple, and he made these two giant cherubim on each side. And then the cherubim on the top of the ark covered the other side. So you had in four directions, four cherubim guarding the earthly throne of God, which represented the heavenly throne guarded by the four living creatures. So it was a pattern of showing God's throne being guarded, and that came to the earthly temple as well. So it set the pattern, but then the next thing I want to show you is that it actually represented the camp of Israel as well. It's very Hebraic. Israel, when they were with Moses, this is how the camps were to line up. And you had behind the camp of Reuben to the south was all these other camps with Simeon and Gad. And then with the camp of Ephraim on the west, behind Ephraim was Manasseh and Benjamin. And then the camp of Dan on the north was Naphtali and Asher. And then the camp of Judah, which faced east, you had Ishakar and Zebulon behind them, and you had four corners of the camp surrounding the tabernacle. And again, it showed you a layout. So let me show you another picture real quick. If you were seeing Israel camping that day, if we were to take you back in time and we put you on a mountaintop and to show you the camp of Israel, and this is how they had to move Let's say this was Balaam, for, for instance, when he looked down on the camps of Israel. This is what you would have saw. This is based on the numbering of the camps, how many are in the camp, and based on the numbering, this is what you and I would have seen if we were on the eastern side of the camp looking into Israel. So this would be the entrance into the temple, the eastern gate, so to speak. Then you have the south, and then you have the north, and you have the west. Based on the number that Judah and Ishakar and Zebulun had, it actually elongated than the other sides. The top was shorter because of the smaller tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and then you had the longer sides. Do you see the image? You can't miss it. That's how the camp lined out. So if you were there, you would have saw a giant cross moving with Moses in the desert. Everywhere he would have went, this is how the camp of Israel lined up. Isn't that amazing? Unbelievable. And you get that from the numbers of the camp, and it forms a giant cross. And at the center of the cross was the tabernacle and the throne of God. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So the, the other thing I want to, uh, to mention is it showed polar opposites. Because it's four-directional, it showed polar opposites. What do you mean? Well, each tribe of Israel had a standard and they had different standards that what they, what they stood for, what that tribe stood for. Well, let me explain this. So the standard for Reuben was a man. That was their image on their standard. And then to the north of Reuben was the tribe of Dan, which had an eagle as their standard. And then the tribe of Judah, for their standard, was a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then the tribe of Ephraim was an ox or a calf or a domesticated beast of burden. It's a picture of Messiah as well. 
They're polar opposites. I don't know if you saw that. Reuben is a man, but to the north of him is an eagle. An eagle represents deity. An eagle comes from the sky. An eagle is in the heavens. He is above all. And that eagle, as, as he comes from down from heaven when he lands, Jesus kept saying to the religious leaders of the day, I come from heaven. I come from there down to you. Again, the eagle represents the deity, and then polar opposite is the humanity of Messiah. Do you see the God-man aspect in the tribes? Okay, then you go to Judah, and Judah is represented by a lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king of Israel and the king of the world. But yet across from him, polar opposite, is Ephraim, a servant. Ah, that's right. How did Jesus come? A servant, Philippians chapter 2, right? So you put it all together, it's showing you he's a king, but yet he's a servant king. He is deity, but yet he is a man. And so you continue to see this flushing out of all the different meanings there with it. So let's go through each beast and, and, and flush this out a little bit. And this shows you the gospel of Messiah. The first one, in verse 7, let's go to verse 7. It says, the first living creature was like a lion. And we have a picture of that, and again, an artist's rendition of this lion. This cherub that has six wings, and you probably can't see it, but it has eyes all over it. All over its wings, all over its, all over its body. It has eyes. And again, it's an angelic creature. We believe it's a seraph or a cherub, one of the two. We're not quite sure. Some related to Isaiah 6, some related to Ezekiel's, but the seraphs in Isaiah and then the cherub in Ezekiel, but they're different. They're, they're different. And so we're not quite sure. We do know they're angels. But anyway, this lion, again, if you look at the Gospels, you'll see that Matthew in the Gospels presents Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, behold your king. And so one of the cherubs represents the king aspect of Messiah, also representing Judah as well. And the king theme in Matthew is everywhere. Let's go to the next creature. The second living creature was like a calf or an ox. So we have a picture of that. And this other cherub or seraph, whatever it is, looks like this, but it has eyes all over and it has six wings. Again, it's the Western standard of Ephraim. It's the servant aspect of Messiah. And so Mark in the Gospels presents Messiah as a servant. Mark presents Christ as the ox, the perfect servant. Interesting, when you read Mark, there's no genealogy in Mark. You know why? Because slaves, it doesn't matter where they come from. They're just a slave. So Mark will not present a genealogy of Messiah. He's different than the synoptic gospels. Let's go to the next one. The third living creature had the face like a man. Again, it looks like a man. Sometimes people refer to it as an angel-looking Creature, again, has six wings, eyes all over him. And again, this represents Reuben to the south, but also represents the humanity of the Messiah. So our statement that we find is in Luke. Luke presents Christ as the perfect man. And the idea is, behold, the man is found in Luke. And so you have that standard. Then the last one says, I saw a fourth living creature that was like a flying eagle. And so now we're going to see another cherub or seraph that has six wings, eyes all over it, representing obviously the tribe of Dan to the north, but also the deity of Messiah. And which gospel is this presented in? 
John. And so John presents Christ as the eagle. Starts out in John chapter 1 proclaiming that Jesus is God, right? And so you can see all four Gospels. It's the true God who comes down from heaven. Behold, your God. All aspects of Messiah are emphasized here in this. And so there's a lot of meanings in this. But then we move to not only the meanings for Israel, the temple, the Messiah, the Gospels, we start seeing the attributes of the triune God in there. Let's go to verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. So let's unpack this. The first thing you notice, they're living creatures. He just doesn't call them creatures. He calls them living creatures. Again, they're presenting attributes, not only of Messiah, but of the triune God. He is the living God, not the dead God of idols. He is the living God. And Messiah said, even in Revelation 1, Behold, I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. The living God can do things. These dead gods that the the world worships cannot do anything. The Mormon Jesus can't do anything. The Jehovah Witness Jesus can't do anything. The Islamic Allah cannot do anything. These are false deities. But the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one true God and the living God. Notice the wings. It has six wings attached to it. That represents God's power, His omnipresence, and the movement of God. That's what that represents in having all these wings. The movement. What does it mean? Well, God's omnipresent. Anything can be brought into his attention at any point in time. He knows what's going on in the world. But the movement represented by wings means that when God acts, it's very quick. And you'll see this throughout the book of Revelation. He'll destroy Babylon in one hour. And even in the Old Testament, he'll destroy things in one day. You'll have complete reversals of fortunes in one day. He can do that anytime he wants to. Because he's God and he has the power to, and it speaks of his swiftness to bring things to an end or start new things. Jesus will continue to say this, behold, I come quickly. What does that mean? That when these events start to occur, things will happen very rapidly, quickly. Notice, just in our own lives, how rapidly things are devolving in our culture. Could you imagine 10 years ago, you thinking about a transgender reading in front of a public in a public library, Michelle Obama library, to kids about a transgender story to kindergartners? And Xochimochi was dressed up as a demon, all kinds of regalia, a transvestite demon reading to kindergartners at the Michelle Obama public library. You would never have guessed 10 years that we would have come to that. Never. You wouldn't have guessed it. You would have never guessed that people are performing child abuse by messing with kids' minds, saying, well, I don't know if you're a boy or a girl. You decide. How about you're letting their DNA decide? What, are you crazy? Yeah, our culture is crazy. So much so, they're performing child abuse on children. You ever think we'd be there 10 years ago? No, no one even imagined that. See how quickly things are developing? Behold, I come quickly. Jesus was saying, when it all starts to go down, the birth pains start happening, it'll just start going just like that. And you won't stay up with it. You can't catch up to the technology. You can't catch up to the evil. It's that quick. It won't stop. That's what the idea of wings happens. He's allowing this. 
And then the last one we see is God's omniscience and glory in these attributes of the seraphim or cherubim, whatever there are. Just another picture of it. Let me show you. It's hard to see, but maybe you can see it. These creatures have eyes all over them. Eyes everywhere, all over their bodies. This is weird. It's kind of scary in some ways. If you weren't a believer, you saw this. John, you could be pretty scared about things. But these are on our side, thank God. But the eyes refer to intelligence, spiritual perception, and constant observance of God on the earth. So, again, refers to God's omniscience, but it also refers to his glory. What do you mean? Well, I understand the omniscience, the eyes symbolizing God seeing all things, but what is this idea of glory? Well, it goes to the Hebrew. The word for eye in Hebrew is ayin, ayin, A-Y-I-N in English, ayin. Eyes represent spiritual light from God. It represents light, the glory of God, the glory of God shining forth and bringing revelation about him and about reality and about us, which gives him glory. Jesus said in one situation in the Gospels, he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. You remember him saying that? And he goes, if your eyes are good, your body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, then how, how bad is that darkness? The eye then becomes the spiritual perceptor of what's going on in the world. So for God, it represents his glory that his revelation is coming down to man. But for us, the eyes represent the ability to spiritually perceive what God is doing. Most Christians don't have a clue what God is doing. They can't spiritually see because their eyes are not right. They can't perceive the glory of God and what God is trying to do. And so we see that today happening, that most Christians are out to lunch on current events about prophecy and how the world's going. But again, let me go back to God and his glory. This idea of the eyes being all over these creatures, and notice it's not just one type of creature, it's all the creatures. The eyes are everywhere on them, and they represent all the creatures. Again, it's portraying that creation, as it was intended, was to be full of spiritual light and glory and manifesting the glory of God in the original creation. That's why there's eyes everywhere. Not only God knows, but that was the original intent. And by the way, he is stating through this, I will eventually bring creation back to this, that all of creation will manifest my glory and revelation. All in that, yes, all in that. Now, let's move on and flush out some more things going on in here. Verse 8 continues to say, And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. That's the triad, referring to the Trinity, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why there's a trice holy. And what do they say? Lord God Almighty. Lord is Yahweh, the personal name of God. Elohim is the creator in Genesis 1. And the Almighty means he has power and he's omnipotent. And then it refers to his eternality, who was and is and is to come. Now, why would they do that? 
They're saying the full name of God, the personal name of God, the creating name of God, the powerful God, the eternal God. And they say it three times to make make sure that you and I know he's referring to the Trinity, not just God the Father, but God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing the triple holy? It's important. Because of the judgments that are getting ready to happen, it is important to understand that God is justified in sending his judgments to this world because of the breaking of his law. What do you mean? Well, the fact that the angels are saying, holy, 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 how is that holiness expressed? How is God's character expressed? It's simple. It's expressed in his law. Now, we're under the law of the Messiah right now, but nonetheless... Even the law of Messiah repeats nine of the Ten Commandments. There's eternal laws that God has set. And what is mankind doing? Creating a God who's not holy and does not have any laws, does not have any concepts or principles or precepts. And that's what our culture has done. They've created a Santa Claus God that lets them do anything they want. Oh, you want to be a transgender? Well, just dress yourself up and go to work as a transgender and sue them if they don't call you by the right pronoun. That's what they do. Their God lets them do that. Their God lets them kill 56 million babies in the womb. God says, thou shalt not murder. Not their God. See, the expression of holiness comes down to law. What does God expect from humanity? We can't even figure out what's up and down anymore in our culture. Everything's gone wild. Everything's for grabs. Polygamy is up for grabs. They've opened Pandora's box. You can marry a horse, I guess, if you wanted to marry a horse. If you wanted to be a horse, I guess you could say, I'm a horse. I, des- I deserve a trough. And I deserve a stable. And if you don't get that to me, you're hating me. You're intolerant toward my horse views. What kind of world are we in? This is a circus. Ah, this is the kind of world you get when you don't have a God that's holy. When you don't have a God that says, that's right, that's wrong. So everything just goes. So the angels are saying when they cry out, holy, 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 they are saying in effect, God is right in his judgments. This humanity that God created deserves all of the plagues, all of the judgments that are coming to this world because they have thumbed their nose to him, rebelled against his holiness and law, and created their own gods. He has the right to do this, is what they're saying. He's the eternal God. That's what they're saying through this. It's hard, but it is what they're saying. Now, verse 9, watch this. He goes, whenever... So this is a constant thing that's happening in heaven. Constant, whenever. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Now, what it's saying is when these four living creatures, these four angels, say holy, 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 they're agreeing that God should bring the judgments and that humanity is in violation of God's law. They're agreeing to this. Then he says in verse 10, the 24 elders, that represents the church, and we, we talked about that, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So the idea is that the church in heaven just gets prostrate right in front of him, down on the ground, 
Anytime these guys do this or these angels do this. And the idea here is it's continual. This is a continual thing that these these angelic creatures do. And people can disagree all they want with God's standards, but the day is going to come where everyone's going to fall face down before him. You can do it now or you can do it later at the great white throne judgment, but everyone's going to recognize his standards are right. But then notice what the 24 elders do. We talked about that. The 24 elders represent the church. They cast their crowns before the throne. We talked about the crowns. The crowns represent five crowns that are given to believers for completing certain tasks in their life, overcoming the sin nature, fulfilling evangelism and righteousness and different things like that. And so only a certain amount of believers will actually get these because they actually did it. But those who have these crowns, Every time the four creatures call on worshiping God, before they go down, they throw their crowns before God, cast them before him. And it's continual every time they throw them down. Why? These are their rewards. These are the church's rewards. Why are they casting their rewards before Messiah? In effect, what the 24 elders or the church is saying is, we could not have done this, our life's work, without you. All the gifts you gave us to do and serve you are only from you. The very breath we breathe, the life we had only comes from you. We couldn't have done it without you. So even though you rewarded us for being faithful stewards and doing these tasks, we couldn't have done it without you anyway. So here are they back to you because they belong to you. And it's an offer of recognition that we're rewarded, but yet really they all come from you. Desire to present one's life's work before Messiah constantly. And they say this, verse 11, You are worthy, O God, or O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Worthy means that's he's, he's worthy in his essential being. Glory is the appreciation of him. Honors, respect of him, and the power And here's the catcher on this. Because he's all of this and power, he can do as he pleases according to his nature. As he sees fit, he has all this due to him. Why? He answers it. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Did you catch that? He is saying the reason God should receive glory, honor, and power is because he's the creator. You know what he's doing? He's establishing the legal right of God over creation. How so? It's this way. If God creates all things, including us, including angels, including everything, the universe, you and I are part of that, that means legally he owns it all, right? So the the idea in legal Hebraic law with Israel is if you do labor and you create something, your work is sacred because it represents your time, your energy, your effort. It represents you, right? That's how the legal system in, in Israel worked. That's why they had thou shall not steal because what you made was legally yours. Tell that to the government about taxes, right? My goodness. Anyway, God owns all things. He has the legal right to it. He has absolute authority. So what he's doing here, and I want you to see this, he is linking 
linking with the four living creatures them to creation and linking the restoration of creation symbolized by the four living creatures. And he's pledging to restore creation by the four living creatures' presence there. And he will do this through Messiah. So do you notice how the living creatures have different animal parts in them, right? Eyes, and they have wings, and some look like a bird. But they're also, they're not just animals. One looks like a human being. They all four represent creation. They represent all material life that he created. That's why he's, they're saying, you, you are the creator and you sustain all things. It's linking the creator with his creation. Ah, did I tell you? It's connecting God to his creation. Now, God didn't create and just leave it alone like a, like a watchmaker and just let it run. He's involved in his creation. He is the author of it, and he can intervene in it at any time. Okay, let's flush this out a little bit more. Notice there's only four of them, right? There's four of them. That's another message inside this message. It represents creation, but the number four in Hebrew, gematria, also represents creation as well. Anytime you see the number four in your Bible, it's representing creation or created matter. Let me give you an example of this number four in, in, in Hebrew gematria. All numbers mean seven means something, three means something. They all mean something. Seventy means something, right? So four, let's go through what four represents in Hebrew and his creative works. Notice you'll find this. When was the matter of the earth created? It's created on the fourth day, right? Four. The fourth commandment was you're going to rest on the Sabbath in commemoration of creation. Fourth commandment. And then you have the four wind directions, north, east, south, west, right? Then you have the four seasons, right? Four corners of the earth. We've got some more fours. Four rivers in Eden. Four divisions in the animal world. Let me explain those. The lion represents the wild beast, symbolic power of majesty, the wild beasts that are untamed. The calf or the ox represents the domesticated beast, symbolic of patience and continuous labor. The eagle represents the swiftness, sovereignty, and supreme. And man, the head of all creation, symbolic of intelligence and rational power. So all four represented in that. Four directions, up, down, left, right of creation in our dimensions. Four representations of Christ in the Gospels. Roman soldiers divided up Jesus' clothes in how many? Four parts. Four is the number of a man in a right relationship with the triune God. Now, most people make mistakes, and it's true, but they combine these. Man's number in a right relationship with God is four. Man's number not in a good relationship with God is six. That's why the Antichrist will have six, 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 666. Six is incomplete, but man connected to his creator is four. So four is everywhere. It represents all of these things. And you can see, do we have any more of those? We have a lot of fours, don't we? Four divisions of people. It'll say nations, tribes, peoples, or tongues, or languages and tongues. It's always a fourfold division. I got any more fours? It's all the fours I got. I, I, actually, I could have went more. There was like <laughs> hundreds of fours. And I said, well, I'll just bring out just a few so you can kind of get the drift of what's happening here. 
Four is all over the Bible. Okay, what, 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 what are we saying here? These living creatures represent God's creative works on the whole earth, and He is known by His creation, obviously. He is the invisible God that is seen by His creation. You're not to worship the creation, but the creation shows you the invisible God, right? The heavens declare His glory, right? Okay. And what you're going to see is the next chapter that Jesus makes it possible to to redeem creation, not just man, but all of creation, all of the universe, by his sacrifice on the cross. Okay. What's the application? What's the takeaway from this? This is, this is all over the place, it seems like. Man, there's a lot of symbolic meanings in that. It's the creation thing. What God is saying to you is that he is linking himself and identifying himself with us. That's what his message is. Now, no lion or, or eagle is ever going to read this, right? I mean, so he's not speaking to them. Who he's speaking to is human beings who are suffering and going through the worst time imaginable in their life. So what he is doing is saying, I'm the connecting God. I'm going to connect to you, and I'm going to do it several ways. Not only am I for you. Not only am I in control of things, not only am I going to reveal unrighteousness and right every wrong in your life and prepare your destiny, I'm going to suffer with you. I'm going to involve myself in my created order and be there with you all the way through. What do you mean? I told you this before, and this is another creation thing. Remember... Adam sinned in the garden, and the curse was thorns and thistles will grow up under your feet. Remember that? The thorns and the thistles, yeah. That thorn and thistle theme keeps going throughout the Bible, and it's showing that God is identifying with our trouble, our sorrow. How so? The burning bush incident with Moses. It says in your English, it says a burning bush. It doesn't say that in Hebrew. It says a thorn bush was on fire. And was not consumed. A thorn bush? Yeah. And then the Ark of the Covenant then was created by Moses in the tabernacle. And what was the Ark wood that Moses used? Acacia, thorn bush, wood. Hmm. Amazing, isn't it? And the theme continues on. God is identifying himself in the thorns. In the thorns. And then you get to the Gospels. And what do they put on Messiah's head? A crown of thorns. I just wonder sometimes if that cross was made of acacia wood. Maybe. But he definitely wore the crown, the symbol of our sin, on his head. God is saying to you and I, I'm identifying and I'm right there with you in your suffering. What do you mean by this? Well, there's three things I want you to pick up on. That God suffers with us, connects to us. Number one, it, he is the God who gives us sympathy and empathy in our suffering. He is not disconnected. It's amazing to think, but God feels with us. He feels what pain we're going through. He is not disconnected. He doesn't possess an inability to feel pain. He does feel pain. He understands the pain, just like the mom sitting next to the son in the chair getting the root canal. She felt his pain in that chair. She wanted to free him of it. He's attuned to our emotional state. 
our emotions signal to him that we're in trouble, and he comes to help us with grace and mercy. How do we know this? When other passages, it says this. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points we're tempted as we are yet without sin. He's a sympathetic God. I feel your pain. Look in Psalm 56, 8. David said this when David was going through all his trial and all the heartache he went through. He told of God, he says, you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book when I cry out to you? God is recording every pain you have. Everything. He goes, I'm putting them in a bottle. I'm writing them in my book. Everything bad that has done to you, I'm recording. I'm going to make it all right. But I am totally aware of all the pain you're going through. We need that. We have a theology. We need a God who sympathizes in that pain. And number two, God validates us. God validates us. How so? What do I mean by this is that what these images are, you're seeing, he's saying, I attribute reality to what you're doing. The fall has broken creation. It has destroyed this world that you live in. All is not how it should be. And I'm taking your problem so serious that I sent my son to die for you and to redeem this whole thing. The pain you feel, he is saying, is serious to me. What you feel makes a difference to me. How you experience life matters to me. I feel your hurt. This is why Peter can say this in 1 Peter chapter 5. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You guys remember the situation where Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead? You get a behind-the-scenes look at this, remember? Lazarus dies, and he doesn't go. He lets Lazarus die. He could have healed him from afar, or he could have went to Lazarus, raised, you know, raised him back from the health that had deteriorated. But no, he let him die. You think it pained Christ to let him die? Of course it did. How do I know? Because the shortest verse in the Bible, but the most profound, is found in that story. He came to the tomb, and he sees everybody weeping in front of him. And he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He could have said, oh, you guys stop crying. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to raise him from the dead. No, no, what does he do? Shortest verse in the Bible, what does it say? Easy to memorize, right? Jesus wept. Why did he weep knowing he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Because he was identifying and connecting to the pain of everyone around him saying, I know what it feels to lose somebody to death. I lost my best friend. I know what it is to suffer like you're suffering. I know what it feels like. We have a God who is entering into our pain. And I can tell you this. When you're feeling this pain, you don't want somebody saying, oh, all things are going to work out. Don't worry about it. Cheer up. You don't want that. You want to know if Jesus is with you. That's it. I've been with people suffering in death. They want to know if God is right there with them, and he is. He's connecting to them in their pain. And the last one is this. God understands us. What do you mean by that? He understands. He gets it about us. You know how sometimes you have to explain things to people about what you're feeling and what you're going through? And it takes a long time. Not, not with God. He, no, he, to, he no, totally understands where you're at. He says, I get you. I understand you, and we all need that. I'm involved in with, with you, and I'm going to redeem what the locusts have eaten. 
That's what we need. He understands us. Yeah, remember the woman at the well? He understood her. He offered grace to her. She was a Samaritan. They were looked down racially by the Jews at that time as half-breeds. And so the fact that Messiah comes over and says, will you give me a drink of water, woman, was a courtesy, was an act of kindness on his part, reaching out, and she's flabbergasted that how you being a Jew would ask me, a Samaritan, to give you water. It wasn't an insult. It was a compliment. He got her. He understood where she's coming from. So he starts off by giving her grace right there in the area that she needed. Right there. He knew where to go with that. Isn't that amazing? See, that's what these four living creatures represent. What's our job then? If God is saying, I want connection to you, I'm in your pain with you, I'm suffering with you, ah, it does bring up responsibility though. Yeah, that's the hard part. He offers this connection, but this connection is not purposeless. It is for a purpose. It requires activity to be useful God wants to connect, but if you will not connect to him in fellowship, you're going to waste what he's trying to do in your life. This is why you see so many Christians who have a sense of abandonment or lonely. They're bitter. They've distorted reality. They feel bad about it. They're off balance. They don't, they don't feel right in their lives. They're just lost. They don't know where they fit in. They're fearful. They're running from things. They're untrusting of other people. Or maybe sometimes they're too needy. Childish behavior. They're detached from reality. Emotionally disconnected. Do you know someone like that? Good bet they're not receiving the connection that God is offering them. It's a responsibility. We have to connect to him. And he makes that so much available in our pain. But what happens in pain? The devil comes to you and says, run from God. Run from God. He can't help you. Run from it and try to cope with life the best you can. That's what the devil will tell you. And God's saying, come to me. I identify. I get it. I understand the pain. I'm going to be like the mom sitting in the chair while you're getting in a root canal, holding on to you, and I will never leave you or forsake you. We're going to go through this together. I read about a case study of a woman this week about this whole idea of God connecting and, and identifying with our pain. It's a very successful businesswoman. Had a lot of things going on in her life. But she had problems in with her relationships, and she would experience depression every once in a while. You can't look at somebody from the outside and gauge what's going on in the inside. They, people can put up really good facades, but she was just destroyed inside. Very successful, though. But she went to counseling, and she wanted to go get help. And what they found out is this woman didn't have such a wonderful childhood. They found out that she had been physically abused as a child, beat to death almost, sexually abused by family members, very bad environment, left to herself a lot of times, emotionally abandoned, no one was there for her. Yet she fought through it a little bit, and, and she became a very successful businesswoman, but she was tore up on the inside. And again, she got the help she needed. She processed everything correctly, and she got through it. And after years of counseling, she, she came out a really healthy individual and restored and, and healed up from all the, the bad trauma that she, she had. But in asking her, the counselor said, what was the one thing that got you through all of this? That You, you obviously went through a nightmare at home. He goes, what was it? What was the one thing we did through counseling that really propelled you forward? And she says, you know how you took me back and to experience all my past hurts in my life? 
And I didn't want to go there because it was too painful to watch my parents beat me or family members rape me and molest me and how painful that was for me to go back to. He goes, yeah, I understand. That's a hard part in counseling. We have to go back to your past. She goes, the way I was able to process that correctly, she says, I just imagined that Jesus was with me. He goes, explain that. She goes, well, you say he's a connector and that he's never leave or forsake me. So when I was a child, he must have always been there with me too, right? He goes, yeah, that's true. She goes, I went back into my past and I rethought about those images. And she says, I can remember laying on the floor and some, my dad beating me to death. And so I just reimagined that Jesus was there holding my hand while I was being beat. And I just imagined that he was taking the beating as well. And then when people were molesting me, I remember Jesus being there. He said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. We're going to get through this. She just kept imagining Jesus with me. And she says, I don't know what that did, but imagining him there connected to me during that pain was everything. Was everything. She goes, of all the things you said, that was the one thing that brought healing to me that my God suffered alongside me. That when I was being beat, Jesus was being beat. She goes, so I just imagined everything, every wrong that ever happened to me, I just went back in my mind, and, and I remember being abandoned, sitting on the side of my bed and saying, where are my parents? And I just imagined Jesus sitting right next to me saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. I haven't left you. You're not alone. We're going to see you through this. We're going to get you through this. Hang on to me. She goes, that's it. That's what the four living creatures represent. That's the message they're speaking. Jesus is with you through it all. And he feels the pain. He understands it. And one day he says, I'm going to wipe all tears from your eyes. There will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I make all things new. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.